Father, thank you so much for giving us your written word so that we know where we can always go to find truth. Truth that is a rock that we can hold on to and a sure thing when we don't know what to do. Father, I pray that your word would be more than just a sound to us today, but it would become something that would be living and real in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, For those of you who are away during Christmas, um, we finished up the book of James. So this week we're going to start a new book in God's precious word. We're going to start in the book of Ephesians. So if I could ask you to turn now to chapter 1. Why did I pick Ephesians? Well, first of all, because it's the book that God has laid on my heart, but also very importantly because it continues this theme of challenging us practically that we have enjoyed in James and we will continue, I'm sure, to enjoy in First Peter. And as we sit here today, it is true that pretty much everyone um, who is here already knows everything that they need to know about their, their salvation, about God, and how to live according to that knowledge. Sorry, Daniel, there's a terrible echo here. Have I got my mic in the wrong place? Or <laughs> You've been watching The Omen too much, my friend. <laughs> okay, so, so we all know what's in Scripture, but what do we do about it? When will we move it from our heads to our mouths to our hands and our feet? What is your answer to that question? Are we obedient? What do we do? What can we do more of and what could we do better are all questions that we ought to be asking ourselves all of the time. Ephesians has a great reputation, you know. One commentary I read described this book as the queen of the epistles because it has such outstanding devotional and theological content. And that view, I think, gets a, um, a very strong piece of support when we find that it's held by, in great esteem by Christians such as John Calvin, who said that it was his favourite book. And he actually preached no less than 48 sermons from it. And I'll try to to do a few less in case I die before I'm finished. (laughs) Now, Ephesians has the earliest attestation of any New Testament book. And just what that means is that we find other writers, and by that I mean other leading Christians, not New Testament writers, who are already using it uh, as a source for quotes in the first and second century. And it seems to have been very widely distributed and read and very well regarded in the early church. Now, it seems to me that if it was seen as that important soon after writing, and that view is held right through until today by guys like John Calvin, well, it's truly a book that is worthy of serious study. Now, of course, it was written by the Apostle Paul while in prison in Rome around AD 62. And for interest's sake, uh, here's a bit of a timeline just to give you some idea what was happening back then. I think the thing that surprised me the most, and this is very scriptural, is that... uh, Somehow I had the idea that the Mayans were way back when, but actually that was happening at around about the same time. Okay, So this is, uh, this is later in Paul's life that he's writing this book. 
Now, there are quite a few scholars who probably have nothing better to do who dispute whether Ephesians actually was written by Paul at all. And they say that thanks to some differences in language style and letter construction compared to his other books. Now, I'm mentioning this because it might be used as an argument someday in conversation. You're talking to somebody and they say, oh, well, you know, Ephesians is rubbish. They say it was written by Paul and it wasn't. And hopefully you're going to be able to come right back at them thanks to your copious notes and my um, expert and riveting delivery today. Well, that's a comparatively modern argument. Uh, it first appeared in 1792, and I'm not making a joke out of that. <laughs> um, maybe that 1792 seems like a long time ago, but what you've got to do is view that in the perspective of all of history, because it means, you know, 1792 up till now is, what, 220-odd years? Right, but it was 1,792 years before that. And remember, all the people there are actually getting closer to the time the book was written. Well, they all believed that this book was written by Paul. Okay? Um, now, scholars do have their uses. One of the commentaries that I got has a review of no less than 279 different opinions on Ephesians. Now, you can imagine that household. Okay? It's time for dinner, dear. Hang on, I'm just putting Calvin's commentary on Ephesians. Okay. Repeat 279 times. Anyway, the final result of that, that review is that the majority of those 279 people, including our friends Luther and Calvin, agree that the letter is of Pauline origin. Then there's heaps and heaps of technical stuff around differences in style and language to Paul's other writings, but it seems most credible to dismiss these differences as unimportant because they aren't that large. And uh, I found a little quote from a fellow named Cadbury. I've no idea whether he was a chocolate man. I didn't have time to look him up. But he did say this, and it was very wise. He said, Which is more likely, that an imitator of Paul in the first century composed a writing 90 or 95% in accordance with Paul's style, or that Paul himself wrote a letter diverging 5 or 10% from his usual style? Makes sense, doesn't it? I think it states the case very well. Now, I need to talk about another disputed matter relative to this book, but I want to do that when it's relevant to the text, which we should probably get around to reading now. So, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. A greeting. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first word there is Paul. Who was Paul? I discovered in my studies that I knew very little about him. And seeing that he wrote 14 out of the 21 New Testament epistles, I think we should know more. So here's a very quick cameo about him. To start off with, his name Paulus means little or small. And this may well be because he was is a book called The Acts of St. Paul, which is an apocryphal New Testament book written in the second century, and it gives us the only known physical description of him. It says, A man of small stature, with a bald head and crooked legs. Hmm. There's, a, there's a picture coming to mind here. <laughs> but, but it's spoiled by this next bit. It says, In a good state of body. <laughs> with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. Sounds like he was well named. He was born with the name Saul in the city of Tarsus 
a bustling seaport on the Mediterranean, and he was born probably between 0 and 5 AD. Now, Tarsus was the chief city of the province of Cilicia, and if this machine will work, no, it doesn't. I knew it would die at this moment. See, I can't kill you, John. If you look right up here, just north of Cyprus, Antioch, Cilicia, and Tarsus in the corner there. Okay, that's where Tarsus was. That's where he was born. Um, now, although the city itself was a few k's inland, the city was a major port and it had access to the sea via the Sidnus River, which flowed right through the city. And also an important Roman road ran north. So Tarsus was a kind of a frontier city, a meeting place for east and west and a crossroads for, for commerce that flowed in both directions by land and sea. And if you think about it, that's really not that different to what Wanganui was many years ago. Yeah, pretty much the same. Now, aside from its com- commercial importance, Tarsus had a very fine intellectual heritage as well because it was the home of notable philo- philosophers and in its time it was a contemporary with famous places like Athens and Alexandria as a centre of learning. Well, how much contact did young Saul have with this world of philosophy in Tarsus? We don't know because he hasn't made any reference to it in his writings, but the marks of that wide education and contact with Greek learning definitely show up in his writings as a grown man. So Paul, unlike many of his apostolic peers, was definitely a townie by nature and not from a hick town either. He was an Auckland bro. Okay? And in the same way that his education shows up and what he writes, well, so does his city origins. And try to understand this man, we should also think about him being Jewish and where his family stood in that respect. Paul describes himself to the Christians at Philippi as being of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. So Paul stood in a very proud lineage that reached right back to the father of his people, Abraham. And from the tribe of Benjamin had come Israel's first king, Saul, after whom the boy of Tarsus was named. Now, of course, as a young man, Paul went to to school and uh, the synagogue school helped Jewish parents to pass on the religious heritage of Israel to their children. And a boy began reading the scriptures when he was only five years old. Just as a little kid, they started getting right into scripture. By the time he was ten, he would be studying the Mishnah which had very involved interpretations of law. So a child would become really steeped in the, in the history, the customs, the scriptures and the language of his people. And as a bright boy, I'm sure that Saul excelled in these studies. Now, the Pharisees, of the major parties of the Jews, the Pharisees were the most strict and they were very determined to resist the efforts of their Roman conquerors to force new beliefs and ways of life on them. And by the first century, they had become pretty much the spiritual aristocracy of their people. As we read in Acts, Paul was a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. We can be sure then that Paul's parents would be keen to make sure that he knew the law as well as possible and he was loyal to it. So following his boyhood studies, Paul was shipped off to Jerusalem as a young man to study at the feet of Gamaliel, where he was taught according to the perfect manner of the law. 
Now this fellow Gamaliel was the grandson of one of the greatest of all the Jewish rabbis who is described as being held in honour by all the people. And I guess today's equivalent might be something like having John MacArthur or Wayne Grudem as your personal tutor. It wasn't all bookwork though because rabbinic students were required to learn a trade so that they could eventually teach without becoming a burden on their people. And Paul selected a very typical Tarsian industry, which was making tents from goat's hair. And later later on, this skill would help him both to make a living and, I believe, to get closer to people by working with them. And I think many of us who, who work with our hands or even in an office environment know how those close relationships develop and how we're able to relate to people better as a consequence. There's no doubt that Paul's teachers were successful. I think maybe too successful. We learn from his own writings and the book of Acts that after completing his studies and a few years back home in Tarsus that Paul returned to Jerusalem and he began to very vehemently and violently persecute Jews who had accepted the teachings of Jesus. I think as a consequence of his background he'd become a real black and white sort of guy which was very consistent with his learning as a Pharisee And since he was definitely a man with an extraordinary strength of will, he felt that he was doing God's work in that persecution and he was intolerant of anybody who didn't live up to his standards. However, he wasn't at all proud of this because in later years he wrote in 1 Corinthians, For I am the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. So, he was a complicated man. A Jew born in a Gentile city, and usually also a citizen of Rome, intelligent and very well educated, but also a man who was used to working with his hands. I think he was torn by his past experiences being a persecutor. We meet him in Ephesians towards the end of his life, having been miraculously called by God and given a new name, Paul. He's travelled very widely in his mission of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, having made three lengthy journeys into Asia and into southern Europe. Despite many, many difficult experiences during his wanderings, he remains with a burning passion to share the gospel and build up the faith of God's people so that they can properly do God's work. So now, we know a little bit about Paul. On this basis... He's a man definitely worth listening to, but he indisputably confirms his authority in the balance of verse 1. And he says, Paul, what is he? He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So at the very beginning of his letter, Paul establishes both his humanity and his authority to speak. In effect, he's saying, here I am, small Paul, okay? I am physically little, but... I am big in God. Don't take what I say as a man is valuable because I have no worth just as a man. But please, listen carefully to what I say as an apostle of Christ because that didn't come about by my will but by God's will and what he has to say contains all value. Paul rightly doesn't attempt to stand on any human authority for his advice, but stands rather on the unshakable rightness of Jesus Christ. He is inviting us to do the same, 
if we take the time to study and ingest the words given to us by God in his holy scriptures. Do we? Now I recognise that so far you've endured a lecture with no hint of physics and chemistry. You look disappointed, John. You're going to stay disappointed. But I want to spend a little bit more time talking about this apostle stuff. Because today we still find Christians calling themselves apostles. And we need to be careful about what we understand by that term. Well, scripturally, there are two qualifications for being apostle. Most specifically, that's why people say specifically, because it's hard to say specifically. Most specifically, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Firstly, you had to have actually seen Jesus after his resurrection with your own eyes. Okay, we learn this from Acts one twenty two. Um, the situation is uh, Judas is dead and they need to replace him. Okay, and Peter says, the one who replaces Judas must become a witness with us of his resurrection. The second thing was that you had to have been specifically commissioned as an apostle by Christ himself. He had to have said, John, yes, you John, I want you, okay, very specifically. And we see something about that in Matthew 10. It reads, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles were, etc., 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 okay, and verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them. Alright? It's pretty obvious that it's impossible for anybody after the biblically named apostles to claim that exact title, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The other thing we can see from this text is that the original apostles were granted an enormous amount of power with the name. Most of all, they had the authority to speak and write words of God that really were the words of God. I can't think of anything more awesome than that. In all of recorded history after Christ's death, there has never been any claim by the head of any credible religious group to call themselves an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we have never seen wide-scale and consistent demonstration of power such as healing from any man after the biblical apostles. Therefore, with these qualifications in mind, if we come across anybody calling themselves an apostle of Jesus Christ, well, I think they should be treated with some suspicion. It would be misleading for me not to point out, however, that it, there is scriptural support for using the word apostle in a general sense. For example, in Philippians 2, Paul calls Epaphroditus your messenger, and he uses the Greek word apostolos, which is the same one we're talking about here. And it's the very word that's used in this passage. So that's fine, okay, in a general sense, to be an apostle of Jesus, but not to say, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm very important. Okay? Not correct. It's interesting that this term, apostolos, is used in classical Greek to describe ships being sent out for cargo or military expeditions. That's a really nice little mental picture, I think. Okay? Christ sent out his apostles these little ships going out to do his work, laden with cargo, you know, ready to do business. The latter part of verse 1 tells us who Paul is talking to. He says, 
to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote to saints. He didn't write to some men and women selected after some long and painful deliberation for notable acts or special, special talents. But specifically he wrote to the holy people God has set apart for himself, the collective body of those who are righteous in God's sight. And this means that he was writing to fellow Christians. Now, if it so happens that you aren't a Christian as you sit listening to this, then, frankly, you are in a bad place spiritually. Paul wasn't writing to you. The Greek word for saint is hagios, which means holy and separated. And this is appropriate because there are only saints or ain'ts. Yeah? After Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, mankind was forever separated from any direct contact with God. He had little hope of heaven and he had absolutely no way of changing the situation. But God still had an enormous love for the people that he created and so he made a way for reconciliation. He sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and by doing that to pay the debt of sin that mankind owed to God. Since that awful but very special day, it has become possible for anyone who will believe in Jesus as their saviour and repent of their sin to once again have a personal relationship with God and a guarantee of eternal life in heaven when they die. This is the gift that God has given to his saints. On the other hand, ain'ts. Ain't got any promise except for eternity in hell. God will ask everyone to choose. At some point in their life, they will know in their hearts that they need to make a decision. Please don't turn away. When you are at that point, and you will know because his call is always very clear, please don't hesitate. Tell him that you know that you have sinned, that you want to change. Ask for his forgiveness, and then take Jesus as your saviour. Perhaps you might want someone to help you through this. If you do, I can assure you that any Christian will be excited and privileged to help you. Find one and ask them to pray for you. Return to our text. As I've already said, Paul wrote this letter while in prison in Rome. And he did so around about the time that he wrote Philippians, Colossians and Philemon. He'd convinced a runaway slave named Onesimus, who he had won to faith in Christ, to go back to his master in Colossae, a journey that would have taken him near Ephesus. And of course that opportunity was too good to miss. Hey, Onesimus, seeing as you're going home, you can just swing by Ephesus and drop off a letter for me. Okay? Yeah? This makes a lot of sense. But there is a catch. Because apparently some of the various, very earliest examples we have of this letter omit the words at Ephesus. And this is the second contentious issue that I was referring to earlier. Okay? The text just says, to the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. Once again, we've got heaps and heaps of scholarly debate. Maybe this was a form letter with a fill-in-the-blank space for the receiving church. Maybe it's some kind of strange error in translation. 
etc., etc., etc. You know what? None of that really matters. The lesson is that we should never allow arguments of this nature to distract us from the important business of sanctification. It's no mistake that saints and sanctification have the same Latin root word. Our status of sainthood is immediate at the moment of salvation, but our state of saintliness, another word we could use instead of sanctification, our saintliness should be visible to everybody around us and is a work that's shared between ourselves and God throughout the rest of our lives. We are saints by appointment. We are saints in spirit, but are we saints in execution? The fastest way to the best saintliness is to focus on doing the things we read about in God's word. In other words, being faithful, as James has just said. Our faithfulness must go well beyond the kind that comes only from our minds. You know, we might be faithful to our employer or maybe to our country in this way. Holy faithfulness, on the other hand, well, it penetrates much more deeply inside us. It joins the spirit and the heart and the mind together so that all of us works to stick to our belief in Christ, no matter what the circumstance, and to outwardly show the faith in all that we do. We will be consistent and obvious Christians, in other words. Are we? Now, James very specifically says that we are faithful in Christ Jesus. And what that means is that no matter what lengths we may go to or how hard we might try to do good things in God's name, they will have exactly zero value without that linkage to Christ. It's that saint and ain't thing again. Sainthood is a marvellous relationship. Christ is in us and we are in Christ. We are no longer alone and hopeless. We have been chosen and marked to be full in every part of us with the essence of God. If we had a special kind of spiritual microscope, there would be nowhere we could look inside our bodies or, in fact, anywhere in anything where we would not find Christ there. We would find Christ there in us. What a wonder that is. And we are in Christ. We belong to a fellowship of saints bought by the blood of Christ. It's as if we were previously invisible to God, but now that we are in Christ, he can recognize us and relate to us there in Christ. Ah, there you are, David. There you are in Christ. He can see us. And this is both a profound mystery and a deep privilege that we can never adequately thank God for. I'd like to ask you a little question now. You might have the opportunity to choose a blessing for somebody you care about, somebody who's special to you. You can pick just about anything that you like. So, what would you go with in the end? Health, wealth, a strong family, world peace? Paul's hope is this. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wishes grace and peace to the saints. This is a term that he uses a number of times elsewhere. This word grace, it's very easily said, but it's theologically profound. It means God's unmerited or undeserved favour in providing salvation for sinners 
through Christ's sacrificial death. This is far more than just a scholarly factoid. Okay? This is personally profound. God has given me a sinner, something I did not deserve. And it was a huge something. His favour, his approval, the certainty of speaking to him and being heard. Having him take a guiding interest in every part of my life. Being sure that when I die, I will not face the fires of hell as I deserve, but I will go on to spend eternity with God in heaven. He did this when I owed him and could not pay. He paid for me in the most expensive coin, the death of Jesus, his son. He has given me peace when my own actions set me at war with him. What a fabulous, what an incredible gift. Praise God for that. Paul has chosen his gift well. It is impossible to choose better. Now let's bring this home. I would love to believe that all of us sitting here today share in that gift of grace and peace. But outside this building, there is a whole world of people who do not. Ain'ts. God did not save us and equip us and gather us together to just to sit inside this building. We are intended to be his ambassadors. While actual salvation is held in God's hands, we do have the power and responsibility, and let us not forget a direct instruction to draw others to him. We must act to pass on the gift we have received. We should know how valuable that gift is. How can we possibly be so greedy or afraid as to hold on to ourselves something that was freely given to us and really over which we have no actual ownership? We must go out and share it because that was its original intention. Yes, for some of us, that is going to mean hanging out on street corners and handing out tracts. But for every one of us, it means diligence and obedience and service in our lives as saints. It means knuckling down to pray and study the Bible and then going away and doing what it says. When we live as God intended, there will be no mistaking what we are and that will give us opportunities for witness. Of course, there are indisputably benefits for us in living in this way, but more importantly, we might have the privilege of passing on the gift that Paul understood so well and yearned to give to every man that Christ died for. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, help us to see that there is movement in your word. That it has to be an outward thing, Father, that we can't just keep this to ourselves. We have something here that we need to share with everyone. Father, you have gifted every one of us differently, but we do have those gifts. I pray that in the weeks and months to come that you would give us opportunities to use those gifts. 
to use what we learn and what we hear to bring other people to your salvation. What a privilege, Father. What a gift. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.